This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and it's my pleasure today to speak with Ted Chaiban, Global Coordinator of the COVID-19 Vaccine Delivery Partnership, where he oversees work supporting countries' efforts to get vaccines to all people who need them. Ted stepped into this role this past February after several years of work at UNICEF. He has previously led UNICEF country teams in Sudan, Sri Lanka, and Ethiopia, and served as regional emergency advisor for Eastern and Southern Africa. He was most recently the UNICEF regional director for the Middle East and North Africa. Since taking on this role, Ted has been busy over the past several months, working with UNICEF, the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and country health officials to build country readiness to get COVID-19 vaccines into the arms of the most vulnerable people. Recently, he spent quite a bit of time traveling to some of the countries identified as requiring extra support and really helping to raise awareness of the challenges that are still faced once vaccines arrive at the main port or storage facility in the national or regional capital and still have to make their way out to district health posts and to remote communities. So today we'll talk about the mission and goals of the COVID-19 Vaccine Delivery Partnership, the unique and common challenges countries face in delivering COVID vaccines, and what he hopes to see in the next month as new vaccines are available and new approaches to get them out to the people who need them are undertaken. So Ted, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you for having me. So it's been a little over a year and a half since the first COVID-19 vaccines were authorized for emergency use, but there's considerable inequity in terms of coverage globally. Early on, you know, it seemed like it was a problem of vaccine nationalism. That is, wealthy countries negotiated advanced deals with the companies, you know, really testing the most favorable candidates, leaving lower income countries and even COVAX, the global facility, at something of a disadvantage in terms of securing access to those limited supplies. So when vaccines were first authorized for emergency use in December of 2020, we saw rapid rollouts here in the United States but more limited programs in some of the middle-income countries, you know, right here in our hemisphere. Then, in February of 2021, COVAX supplied the first doses to some of the low-income countries that were part of the Advanced Market Commitment, or AMC, you know, really just a few months later than many of the high-income countries, but with far more limited doses available for each country. And so now, you know, if we look at global coverage, places like the United Arab Emirates, Singapore, and Chile have over 90% coverage of the two doses of the COVID vaccines. But then there's Haiti, for example, with not quite 2% coverage. And most places are somewhere in between. But while at this point now, it seems that we have a much better overall global supply of vaccines, we're also hearing about countries with low coverage, letting vaccine either donated or procured through COVAX go unused. So I wanted to ask you, 
what's driving this inequitable access and then now delivery of vaccines? Why do we see these wide disparities in terms of coverage now that the supply is not such a big challenge? And how is the COVID-19 Vaccine Delivery Partnership really working with countries to address these bottlenecks and some of these issues? First, I think the premise that you set up is correct. There is considerable inequity in terms of COVID-19 vaccine coverage. Globally, we're at 61% of the population being fully vaccinated, but that goes down to 16% in low-income countries and 19% of the population in Africa. I do want to state, however, up front, and this is an important message, that progress is possible. There has been good progress in accelerating COVID-19 vaccination since January in a number of countries. Since the beginning of the year, the overall COVID vaccination rate in the 92 advanced market commitment entities, uh, as you said, largely the low and lower middle income countries that signed up to COVAX has increased from 28% in January to 48% today. For the countries that we were particularly concerned of, those that were at less than 10% coverage in January, overall coverage has gone from 3% on average to over 13%, now 4.3-fold increase. For a moment, focusing on those 34 countries, 23 now have coverage levels that are beyond 10%, and eight of those have gone beyond 20%. Ethiopia at the top of that list, they were at 3.5% in January, they're at over 33% now. So there's been a significant amount of progress. Having said that, the situation is complex. Many of these countries wanted the vaccine last year. They were not available in sufficient quantities. And then the Omicron wave came and completely changed risk perceptions. In countries that were already dealing with stretched health systems and with a multitude of health and humanitarian and economic priorities. So what we have as a situation is that a majority of people in those countries, specifically post-Omicron, are willing to get vaccinated, but only if it's a seamless experience that brings the vaccine close to their homes. They're not going to take a half a day from trying to earn their daily wage to go get a vaccination, but they will get it if it's on the way and it's easily accessible, preferably one shot as opposed to two shots. And they want to be able to do this. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to do the support to COVID-19 vaccination in a way that decentralizes the vaccination, that takes into account other health priorities, and also recognizes COVID-19 as an opportunity to strengthen the health system, the cold chain, the work on health management information systems, and the training and remuneration of frontline workers. It's in that context that the COVID-19 vaccine delivery partnership was established. We were set up as a supply situation improved at the end of 2021 by UNICEF, WHO, Gavi, and other partners. And our focus is to help support in-country vaccine delivery from ports to arms in the 92 advanced market commitment countries. But we're specifically focused operationally on the 34 countries that were at 10% or less full vaccine coverage. And we have at our disposal rapid funding mechanisms, technical assistance, and we can engage politically to encourage countries to focus on COVID-19 vaccination and to support them with this acceleration. What we're doing is we're looking at their own targets, countries' own vaccination targets, 
And we're encouraging a focus on those most at risk, health care and other frontline workers, the elderly people living with comorbidities. The pandemic is not over. We have a vaccine, which is an important tool to deal with this serious disease that has caused death and severe illness. The vaccine not only protects us against severe illness and death, but it also helps us avoid the next variant. And so it's really important with six million lives lost that we continue this acceleration, that we stay the course and support those countries that didn't have this opportunity in 2021. The, the next six months through the end of the year are key. So you've mentioned the importance of community-based approaches, really bringing vaccines to where people are, making it easy for them to access those you know, in their homes or where they work or where they go to the market and that kind of thing. You've really emphasized the importance of a decentralized approach overall. But when you talk with health officials in the focus countries, I guess really these 34 out of the AMC 92, what are their main concerns? Are there some concerns that are common across all of these? Or are you really looking at needing to kind of tailor your approaches to each country's unique set of challenges and problems? I think there's similar concerns across a range of countries with different degrees and variations, but the solutions are often country specific. Let me start with what's common. These countries are facing a number of priorities from many are dealing with humanitarian crises. Others are dealing with other disease outbreaks such as cholera, yellow fever, measles, polio. We are going to have data on routine immunization. It's going to show a drop and a significant drop for the second time of the year. So, you know, these are countries where the Health system was under enormous stress. They've had to deal with a number of priorities, and then they have to contend with polio. We also, as I said, have to address the reality that Omicron came through a number of these countries and changed risk perception. It was transmissible, but not as virulent as Delta. And so risk perception changed, not necessarily an increase in vaccine hesitancy, but a need to look at vaccine demand in a different way. And then you've got the existing challenges of stretched health system from cold chain that needed to be upgraded and COVID-19 was such an opportunity to uh, logistical challenges, to health workers that often are not well paid. What we're trying to do as a COVID-19 vaccine delivery partnership is work with what we call the one team. So the government at country level and its partners to, you know, identify these bottlenecks and try to find solutions, which are often variations of the same solutions, but specific to each country. So, you know, we're able to bring best practices from one country to another, provide advice, mobilize quick funding to address campaign type acceleration activities that need to take place. And again, engage politically. No country that has needed to catch up has done so without a period of, of vaccination campaigns. And so you do need to support that acceleration, even as subsequently there is an integration into the routine system. Let me give a couple of quick example. Firstly, let me give the example of Chad, where the COVID-19 vaccine delivery partnership, or COVDP as we call ourselves, was able to mobilize $4.9 million when a new minister came in right before Ramadan and said, I would like to make a real push on COVID. I've got vaccines that are about to expire. Our vaccination levels are very low. We got the funding in really quickly. They were able to vaccinate 1.6 million people in the weeks before Ramadan. 
That represented 52% of their then target. Their overall coverage level went from 6% to 13%. That's an example of a quick injection of cash, campaign-style activities, moving things forward. Beyond that, advice on, on strategies. So working with Malawi and the partners in Malawi to look at different kinds of programmatic strategies that can make a, a difference. If you're going to be trying to reach the elderly, you need to, first of all, work with channels of influence and opinion leaders that they will listen to, local community leaders, religious leaders, in order to have a dialogue about the importance of getting vaccinated. And then you need to be able to go house to house. You know, if you're 75, you're not going to go to a mass vaccination site in the urban center of Lilongwe or Blantyre. If a health worker that you know and trust comes to your door and offers this and explain why this is important, you're more likely to get vaccinated. So these are the kind of solutions and the kind of steps that we can support countries with. There are also examples where, you know, it's a political bottleneck. The country's otherwise focused or in some cases, there was active opposition to getting involved on COVID-19 and still is in, in a handful of countries. And so then we try to engage politically and bring out both the health and economic arguments why working on COVID-19 is so important for that country's citizens. So I wanted to ask about this effort to really get vaccines to adults. And you mentioned some of the particular efforts around focusing on the elderly. We know that adults and, and elderly in particular may certainly have engagement with the health system, but they're not necessarily involved in routine immunization programs, except insofar as they might be taking children in for, for vaccines. I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about what you've seen in the countries where the partnership has been working. What has worked best in terms of really kind of trying to orient the immunization programs to adults and get them more accustomed to coming in for vaccines. And, you know, you mentioned the WUNIC data. This is the World Health Organization, UNICEF, National Estimates of Immunization Coverage data. You know, that, at least what I'm hearing, is likely to show that there have been additional drops in immunization coverage for DTP3 and, and other childhood vaccines over the past couple of years. So just, you know, wondering how you and your colleagues, when you're engaging with health authorities in the, the countries where you're working, you know, are really trying to help, you know, set up a situation where uh, the focus on the COVID vaccines is complementary to rather than competitive with the routine programs that, that have been in place. First, let me say that it is a very serious concern that childhood vaccination coverage levels have gone down, as have access to other health services such as maternal health as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic more broadly. I think from lockdowns to the stretch health services and exhausted healthcare workers, people shunning the health system at some point, maybe not then resuming health system behavior. And then, of course, the economic downturn. People are really focused on pocketbook issues. All of that, I think, has, has resulted in that. And I think it'll be really important that we bring more attention to routine immunization while maintaining continued acceleration of COVID-19 vaccination. It's not an either or. It needs to be an and and. So. The question of reaching adults with immunization, you know, is kind of new for a lot of countries. I mean, in parts of the northern hemisphere, a good part of the population might be used to getting seasonal flu shot. But that's not a practice in many countries. And so for the first time, you're going to adults and saying this is something that you need to do and that is good for you. 
And it, it is challenging. I mean, first of all, the scale of it, you're looking at four to five times immunizing children beneath the age of five versus you know every single person in the country. Second is some of those adults are not used to interacting with that part of the healthcare system and don't have health seeking behavior. And I would say elderly men in particular tend to not actively you know, pursue preventative health measures unless they're sick. And then, of course, the young feel like they're invincible and this is not going to bring them down. So, I mean, there needs to be a lot of work which is tailored to reaching out to adults and in, in a system that has maybe focused more on, on children and maternal health. And then, of course, addressing the whole issue of misinformation, social media, which then leads to vaccine hesitancy, ironically at times, primarily in some of the more educated segments of the population, including healthcare workers themselves, which is a, a real recipe for paralysis when that can't be addressed. So I think there's been a, a huge effort by countries to address all that, including you know a large-scale communication effort and a focus on risk communication and community engagement, but also vaccine demand. In a number of cases, task shifting. So bringing more health workers to the table to reach out to a larger population, the setting up large vaccination site, but then complementing that with house to house decentralized campaign. And then this focus on opinion leaders and, and getting the right opinion leaders to work with adults. So I think what's important as we look at that equation and the balance you asked for is that we try to do the work on COVID-19 as effectively and efficiently as possible so that the health resources can go back to doing other health priorities. And that can be both during the campaign phase as well as during the integration into more routine services. And we also make the case for the integration or bundling where possible of services or at least the sequencing intelligently of those exercises and, and try to get assets to carry over from, say, a COVID-19 campaign going into a polio campaign and do both of those as efficiently as possible so that the health assets can go back to the other services that need to be delivered. A couple of examples. I mean, in, in the Central African Republic, we've seen COVID-19 and other vaccinations go hand in hand. They've been very good at you know, bringing COVID-19, polio, vitamin A, and deworming in one effort together and actually bundling the resources to be able to do that. You know, in Ethiopia, when they screen, and Iraq has done the same, when they look at reaching out for COVID-19 vaccination, they identify zero-dose children and bring them to the immunization system. So there are examples of actually, you know, flipping that. Maybe the final point I would make is that if we don't deal with COVID-19 and we continue to have these variants that come up, we could see a situation where more people get sick again, they clog up the health system, we go back to kind of social distancing measures, and then we're further behind on vaccination and access to the health system. So, you know, it's really important to do both support to routine immunization and COVID-19 vaccination to educate people, both children and their families about re-engaging with the health system and the importance of doing that, but also adults about the importance of, of vaccinating themselves for them, for their children and for their community. I wanted to go back to something you said a few minutes ago that I think you know, is linked to, to some of these challenges you've outlined here. It has been particularly challenging to ensure outreach to people living in communities that 
have experienced conflict or that are considered kind of fragile settings. And certainly we've seen over the past couple of years that potentially the number of displaced people or people who have had to migrate for economic reasons or political reasons has increased and the challenges that people living in conflict-affected settings you know, are facing just in terms of access and healthcare has become even more acute. I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about the approaches that the partnership is taking in terms of really trying to ensure people living in humanitarian settings or who have experienced conflict are able to access these vaccines and these services. And what are you most concerned about in terms of those particular populations? And what have you seen to be the best approaches? You know, there is the the COVAX humanitarian buffer, the, the fund that was set up to ensure that countries could draw on that to provide support for refugees living within their borders and others. But if you could just say a little bit about some of the steps the partnership is taking beyond that to really reach those especially vulnerable populations. Let me say that of the 11 countries that still are below 10% full vaccine coverage, eight, eight of the 11 are dealing with humanitarian crises. And in fact, if you look right over the line of 10%, there's another five or six in that bottom 10 10.1, 10.5, 11%, 12%. It's very clear that there's a strong correlation between dealing with humanitarian crises, in some ways also perhaps chronic humanitarian crises, which have impacted the strength and the resilience of the health system. So, you know, you're in a fragile context, basically, and low COVID-19 vaccine coverage. It's also true that the same correlation goes with several other health indicators in those countries. So it is absolutely essential that we focus on health systems in those countries, that we focus on countries dealing with humanitarian situation as an area of priority. In my view, what we're doing as a partnership is what can be done, which is to focus on reaching out to the country team, the one team, government, and and government still is a player in all these settings and their partners, and recognize that if we're going to move forward on COVID-19 vaccination, we need to do this in a way that you know, realizes there are humanitarian priorities and integrates work on COVID-19 with humanitarian activities as part of a package of activities that is available. And again, making the case that there's resource from COVID-19 that can be bundled with humanitarian resources to advance that package of activity. So that dialogue is ongoing. And I think we've seen places like Central African Republic and Chad made significant progress, even in a place like Afghanistan, they've continued to move forward with COVID-19 vaccination. It's important not to, you know, say, oh, you're at four or 5% now, you know, you need to jump to 70% and and reach that global target. I think let's focus on what can be achieved given everything else you're handling. And let's just prioritize high priority groups and let's reach your country milestone. Again, not at the expense of all the other important priorities that you're dealing with. If you're in Somalia, you're dealing with the threat of famine. That's what you're going to be focused on. Now, in the process, can you also, as you're delivering health services, deliver the COVID-19 vaccine? Because if you're earning $2 a day, it's better for you not to get sick and not be able to work that day. Yes, it's something that we can talk about doing in a reasonable, thoughtful, measured way. Then we are looking at the whole issue of displaced populations and specifically seeing with UNHCR and IOM 
if more can be done to reach that part of the displaced population, refugees and internally displaced that are in concentrated settings, those that live in camps or that live in places where they are accessible and where they ought to have good vaccination levels, at least in line with what the national average is. A lot of this place lived in communities and they should be accessed through the mainstream vaccination effort. But in those places where they're concentrated, how can we work to make a special effort there? Maybe a last point on the humanitarian buffer. I think COVAX has done an enormous service to us globally by setting up systems, processes, partners that were focused on getting vaccines into the arms of the most vulnerable in the most difficult settings with a focus on low and lower middle income countries. What they've done with uh, delivering vaccines, bringing us into focus on supporting delivery. And again, a lot of work was done before we were established with the partners. The humanitarian buffer was set up as an important tool to specifically deal with a population that might otherwise be excluded from national vaccine deployment plans. It hasn't worked as quickly or as well as I think any of the partners would have liked. And we need to make further efforts to identify where it's strictly needed now that we've moved from a situation of vaccine scarcity to vaccine availability and who is excluded in a manner that the buffer is still the solution and then work our way through the legal and liability hurdles to get vaccines to those populations. Again, the vast majority of the humanitarian affected populations that need to be reached will be reached through national efforts, working with humanitarian actors and using that expertise and that nimbleness. But there are populations that are excluded and the humanitarian buffer still has a place. And I think we need to keep working at it. So you've outlined why this partnership was brought into being in January of this year, just seven or so months ago. What you've heard in terms of the challenges that countries are facing and some of the, the different ways in which the partnership or the partners within this overall partnership have been able to work with countries to identify some of the challenges around delivery, getting vaccines to adults in particular, working to strengthen people's access more broadly to the health system. and. You know, you've really talked about integrating services, whether, you know, using some of the platforms developed for COVID vaccines to also enhance delivery of, of other routine immunizations or, or polio vaccines, for that matter, and trying to be creative, it sounds like, in ways to reach people with many different kinds of services they need in this challenging period. You know, I wanted to ask you, as we see additional vaccines come on the receive their emergency use authorization and, and begin to be deployed, uh, some of which don't require as much of the, the cold chain infrastructure that we've seen with some of the, the ones that were authorized earlier on. I wanted to ask what developments that we're seeing now are giving you kind of the greatest hope or, or cause for optimism in your efforts to strengthen countries' delivery of vaccines. We've got all these challenges. We have new products coming on board, but we've also got now the spread of Omicron uh, BA5 in countries around the world. What gives you the greatest hope as you look forward for the rest of the year? There's a number of things that give me hope. First of all, it is that progress has been possible and still is possible. And it is about the countries, right? I think we all are here to support the countries and the partners work in, in that spirit. But it is about the countries. They've made enormous step forward in making the vaccine accessible to population, vaccinating population. Again, I think the emphasis needs to be on vaccinating 
high risk groups. For all the tragic loss of life and suffering that we've seen with COVID, the pandemic has spurred some really important debates on what needs to be done and how we need to work together. And I expect that there will be actions arising out of those debates. So what's been important is the recognition that there needs to be manufacturing capacities that is more decentralized. At a time when a lot of the health assets were needed in some of the most vulnerable places around the world, they were not available. And I'm not just talking vaccines, I'm talking PPEs, some of the basic health supplies. So, you know, this effort to support manufacturing of health commodities, including vaccines in more place around the world, do that thoughtfully in a manner that looks at markets and specifically do that in Africa, I think is, is going to be key. You know, I think that's one of the key lessons arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. There needs to be for pandemic preparedness and response, more emphasis on, on decentralization of means of production. Investing in primary healthcare is something that we did not do well enough after Ebola, including the payment of frontline healthcare workers in a more joint up manner. So relying on the national budget, but then the partners not working each as their own part of the health architecture, but in a concerted manner to support health system strengthening and recognizing that pandemic preparedness and response goes through primary healthcare. That's the roots of a pandemic and preparedness and response system. I think there's a recognition of that, that that's where the beginning of prevention, disease surveillance and a response is. And I am hopeful that this is something that we will take forward. There's been remarkable technologies coming out of the COVID-19 response. All of the work around the mRNA vaccine technology and now, you know, WHO working to, to set up technology transfer hub in, in South Africa to, to be able to transfer that technology. The, the work in Senegal with the Madiba project, which will result in greater vaccine autonomy. We, in my view, should not just be focusing on COVID-19 vaccines now, but really how does that technology help us for diseases that will be coming in the future? So these are causes for hope. It needs to be realized. We need to make sure that we don't walk away both from the current pandemic response and then from the lessons of this pandemic for future pandemic preparedness and response efforts. We need to recognize that both are needed. We're still in a pandemic. We still need to respond to COVID-19. We still need to get COVID-19 vaccination levels up, have a continuation of testing and treating with the tools that are emerging. Make sure that the next generation of vaccines doesn't become the next inequity line and be vigilant in terms of public health measures as the virus mutates. And at the same time, focus on pandemic preparedness and response, get that architecture right and learn from COVID-19 to do it better next time. Really, I mean, it sounds like part of what you're saying that we have learned from the earliest phases of COVID that should be relevant, not just for continuing efforts to develop and provide vaccines, but also for future pandemic preparedness, is to really think about questions of equity very early on and even in the R&D process to ensure that products are being developed that are going to be able to be used by people across the world, not just in certain areas. You've talked about the relevance of decentralizing manufacturing you know, to have that tech transfer happen. 
again, early on rather than late in the game. And you know, really, again, think about equity in terms of production so that we're not stuck in a situation where things are produced in one part of the world, but there's an export ban or there's natural disaster or something that, that really prevents them from getting to, to the people who need them. And the importance of primary health care, not only in terms of really being the place where disease surveillance and testing and diagnostics are carried out at the front line, but also a way that helps people connect to the, the health system. It's based at the community where care is provided by people known and trusted in the community and can really help strengthen that recognition of an outbreak and a smooth response to challenges when, when they arise because that is situated right there. So Ted Chagon, I want to thank you very much for joining me today to share some of your perspectives from your work as the global coordinator of the COVID-19 Vaccine Delivery Partnership. There's a lot to do and a lot more to do, but I really appreciate your taking the time to share some of the progress and lessons learned and, and ideas for the future with me today. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 